0: Good evening, and welcome to the Pratt Library, State Library Resource Center. On behalf of our director, Carla Hayden, I want to extend a warm welcome to you for joining us this evening to hear our guest speaker, James McGrath Morris, discuss his latest work, Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. But first, let me give you a brief background about Mr. Morris. He is an author, columnist, radio host, and he has written extensively for for newspapers and magazines, as well as some academic journals. Prior to becoming a full-time writer, Mr. Morris spent a decade as a journalist, a decade working in the book and magazine business, and a decade as a high school teacher. So he's got a lot of decades going on here. (laughs) My aunt always used to say, when are you going to get a real job? His prize-winning books include Pulitzer, A Life in Politics, Print and Power, which the Wall Street Journal deemed as one of the five best books on American Mongols, and Booklist placed it on its list of the 10 best biographies of 2010. He is one of the founders and past presidents of Biographers International Organization, BIO, and makes his home in Santa Fe, New Mexico with his wife. Please welcome Mr. Morris to Baltimore and the Pratt Library.
1: Part of the reason I wanted to come to Baltimore was that you may or may not know, but the oldest continuously published African-American newspaper is in Baltimore. Um, I'm using a new device, so I'm going to just make sure it works. Yes, Yes, it does. Um, My book has two purposes in mind. Um, the first is to write a biography of Ethel Payne, who is a remarkable woman, a fascinating woman, and has a compelling life. But the title, subtitle of the book is Eye on the Struggle, and the reason I did that is I thought people should see the civil rights movement through her eyes, not through the eyes of a historian so many years later. And she was always at the front lines of the civil rights movement. So the book does both. But the third thing that the book does, which I didn't intend to do, but turns out it has, now that I've been on the road, is that there's an enormous ignorance in the United States about the role of the black press. And in having to explain it to my readers, it's turning out to become an important part of the book, which I hadn't anticipated. So I want to start this talk back in February of 1954. And of course, if you know your history, that's several months before Brown v. Board occurred, the decision. And Ethel Payne was a reporter for the Chicago Defender and she was on her way to this building the old exec- what we now call the old executive office building where Eisenhower would be holding his press conferences quite regularly Eisenhower had been elected of course. let me try to get my little thing to work yeah. Eisenhower had been elected and Republicans had a lot to celebrate because um, this is the first time sorry, having a little technical problem here bear with us there we go They were holding a Lincoln Day celebration. And Lincoln, of course, founded the Republican Party, so every year they gather to celebrate his birth. But also, this year, they had a lot to celebrate. It was the first time since since before the Depression that a Republican was in the White House. So they invited several choirs to come and sing. Two choirs were whites from Southern colleges, and one choir came from uh, the historically black college of Howard University. That choir bus was blocked from entering the building. Washington was a highly segregated city in that time, and it was pretty obvious what had happened. And Ethel Payne was going to go to this press conference to ask the President of the United States, who had spoken at this event, if he knew about it and what he thought about it. At that time, Ethel Payne was a reporter for the Chicago Defender, which uh, was one of many... Oh, sorry, we just switch back. Sorry, my uh, my technical device here. Uh, Dave? There we go. Thank you. The African inventor was one of as many of the storied history of the African-American press. The Freedom Journal, started in 1827, was the first. But all throughout the last century, it had been an important chronicler in the African-American community of everything from civil rights to routine social matters. And part of the reason is that in cities like Chicago and Detroit, where African-Americans had moved, or in Baltimore from the south, um, the white press was, was so ignored the African-American community, the routine things that we expect to be in the newspaper, children's graduations, wedding, funerals, all those kinds of things were completely excluded. So in Chicago, for instance, in Southside Chicago in Bronzeville, um, African-Americans created their own institutions, banks, cosmetic companies, taxi services, funeral homes, and the Chicago Defender uh, was among them. Um, and because you, you can see from some of these headlines, it was a true chronicler of the civil rights movement. But because it was, it was also feared in the South. New, uh, counties in the South banned the paper, and it wasn't just a matter of legal things. If you received the paper in the South, you could be well subject to violence, so you would not want to subscribe to it through the mail. And the Chicago Defender was no more just a Chicago newspaper, say, than the New York Times is merely a New York newspaper. So these gentlemen you see in this photograph of Pullman Porters, they played an important role in the early part of the 20th century in delivering the newspaper to the South. They would carry bundles with them, leave them at barber shops in the South, and on Saturdays men would be able to pick them up and take them with them uh, home in a secret fashion so that they could... um, uh, read the Defender. Ethel Bain was born in 1911, and she was born in South Side Chicago in this world. And wonderfully, her father was a Pullman porter. He died when she was very young, but before he was, died, he was able to buy the family a house, which was a rarity. She lived in a part of South Side Chicago called West Englewood, which she described as being an, a, an island in a sea of whiteness, unlike the rest of South Side which was uniformly African-American, West Englewood was surrounded by white neighborhoods, which meant that by walking, she could get access to better libraries, to Copernicus uh, Elementary School, Lindblom High School, and get an education that was superior than some of her other young kids were. This is her high school graduation picture. But she started off her professional life in Chicago with no hope of getting a professional job. Seven out of ten black women at that time in Chicago were employed as domestics. The idea of being a writer or an attorney, which was one of her hopes, was completely, every door was closed to her. So in 1948, she responded to an advertisement to become a service club hostess in Japan. 1948, of course, is famous because that's the year Truman signed the executive order desegregating troops. But unfortunately, in Japan, Douglas MacArthur chose never to listen to Truman on anything, and he wasn't going to desegregate the troops. So she went to Japan to be a service club hostess for the African-American club. Now, while it was segregated, it turns out that whites very much liked to go to her club. Music and food was better, but it was still nonetheless segregated. And one of the things, sorry, um, here's a picture of her celebrating a birthday. One of the things that occurred in Japan that really interested her and keep in mind, she wants to be a writer. So she's chronicling everything and thinking about everything is the relationship between Japanese women who were quite destitute because Japan had been wrecked by World War II and soldiers, both white and black soldiers had relationships with Japanese women, dating and those kinds of things. And the product of those relationships were often children. Now, the, the fraternization of white soldiers with Japanese women was not as much of a, a problem at that time as African-American soldiers fraternizing with Japanese women because the mixed-race babies were shunned by Japan. Japan is a very homogeneous um, and xenophobic society, not interested in anything that was mixed. Also, it was a problem for the military because back in the States, any form of cross-racial dating was... was um, shunned and including in the south it could be actually against the law and so these brown babies as they were called, occupation babies were abandoned, put in orphanages and Payne took a great interest in them but she had no place to publish her story so she kept it in her diary Um, again sorry excuse my technical problems here this is her in one of her Japanese outfits um, Payne met Alex Wilson, a reporter for the Chicago Defender, who came to cover the Korean War. And the only way you could cover the Korean War was to come through Japan. That's where the Central Command was. So he met Payne, and he heard about what she had uncovered. And he borrowed her diaries and sent them back to Chicago, and they published them. And the headline at that point says, Japanese girls playing G.I.s for suckers says, fate that awaits war babies is tragedy of Yank Oriental unions. This story was widely discussed back home, but also in Japan where the Central Command was quite furious because they thought it was disloyal, so they'd yanked her from her job and were going to send her packing. But it just so happens Thurgood Marshall had arrived in Japan. I have another picture of these. um, uh, Sorry, we're... Um, that's a picture from Jet magazine, and the caption describes how these children are being taunted and are thus in tears. Um, so anyway, Alex Wilson came to uh, came to Tokyo from the Defender to cover the the uh, uh, Korean War, and um, one of the things they were covering, um, and one of the reasons Thurgood Marshall came, was that Ameri- African American soldiers were being uh, court-martialed at a higher rate than white soldiers, and the reason is that MacArthur hadn't desegregated the troops, so the only way he could relieve troops on the front line was by race. And keep in mind, these are 18, 19-year-old kids who didn't anticipate being shot at. So many of them were leaving the front lines, both whites and blacks, but blacks at a higher number because they weren't being relieved and they were being court-martialed. So Thurgood Marshall came to the United, came to Japan. And when he met Ethel Payne and learned about her problem, he also solved it. They let her go back to the United States. And the Chicago Defender, who had gotten her in trouble but recognized her journalistic abilities, gave her her job, and she became a correspondent, a reporter for the Chicago Defender. Here she is at age 40, interviewing Adlai Stevenson, of course then governor of Illinois. And then she comes to Washington as their Washington correspondent. Louis Latour, to the right, was the first African-American Um, uh, credited to the White House press corps. Alice Dunningham was not in that picture, was the first woman, and Ethel Payne was the third uh, person or second woman African-American credited to the corps. I'm sorry? Yes, yes, that was a gentleman on the the right. They were interviewing him. I mean, on the left, I'm sorry. Stage right, stage right. So let's get back to that moment where she's on her way to the press conference to confront Eisenhower about the Howard Choir in the spring of 1954. She says to him, "Mr. president, this choir wasn't admitted and explains the circumstances. And he um, correctly apologizes if this had indeed happened because of race. And he said, look into it. But what happened and what Payne recognized at that moment is by asking a question at a national press conference, it forced the rest of the media to pay attention. The Washington Post, which prided itself on covering local stories, had completely missed the story about the Howard Choir's exclusion, now had to write a story about it. So she began to ask the president increasing numbers of questions about civil rights. She formulated them with the help of Clarence Mitchell, the NAACP lobbyist nicknamed the 101st senator, until the point came that she asked, in some ways, the, the ultimate question of Eisenhower, which was that she said to him, Congress has the constitutional power to desegregate interstate bus travel. Will you support such a measure? And Eisenhower rears up in some form of anger in his military posture, and he says, I don't know where you get to ask that question. And you notice the way I said you That's not because I saw the printed transcript. That's because I drove to Abilene, Kansas and listened to the tape. And Eisenhower not only sort of bolts at her by saying you, but he also then says, I'm not going to do things just for any special group. The room went dead quiet. Because in plain English, what Eisenhower had said at that moment is that the quest for equality by a large part of the American population was no different than a special interest group, say, the farm lobby. He erred. He also realized it's time to stop letting Ethel Payne ask questions. But luckily for Ethel Payne, as a journalist, something was brewing in the South. As you can recognize the picture here of Rosa Parks sitting in a bus and the wrong place in the bus, so to speak. And Martin Luther King and Abernathy and others formed and, uh, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. So Ethel Payne heads off to cover these things. Now, this is enormous risk. She's woman, she's black, and she's, worst of all, a reporter. Southern whites do not want this kind of news getting back home. But what she does in Montgomery, which I want to give you as an example of her remarkable skill as a journalist, 60 years later, we as historians can say there was a big moment there Because the change in leadership in the civil rights movement was moving from people like Thurgood Marshall in the legal community to men of the cloth and nonviolence. It's easier years later to see that. On the ground, in the first few months, Ethel Payne saw that. On February 15th of the year that she got down there, she talked about a new type of leadership emerging. And here are the first few words of her article. He is neither an NAACP worker nor a CIO political uh, field director. Instead, the gladiator going into battle wears a reverse collar, a flowing robe, and carries a Bible in his hand. This new vocal, fearless, and forthright Moses who is leading the people out of the wilderness into the promised land is the Negro preacher. A profound observation that she was making, but also notice her language. She was keenly aware of her readers. She's like the Ernie Pyle of the civil rights movement from World War II, in that her her material is intimate. It's folksy. It, the headlines begin to say things like Ethel Payne sees hate. Ethel Payne reports. And so many years later, when you look at like the Library of America, that's made a collection of civil rights reporting, she's not in there. And that's because people fundamentally misunderstood. As a keen journalist, she knew who she was writing for. She did not have the sophisticated audience that some of the white newspapers had. She had a group for whom education was often a barrier. And so she chose her words carefully and not only thus informed readers back home, and by back home, I don't mean just Chicago, all the northern papers where they might be readers. These are the communities to people like where Martin Luther King and others are going to come north to raise money. So she's informing them from the front lines. And at the same times activating citizens but ethel Payne also saw something different she saw a connection between the civil rights movement here in the states and the international struggle for freedom that the black freedom struggle here was not just a domestic issue it extended all around the world think about it all the african countries were ruled by whites asia was a number of colonies so at the same year she heads off to a place in indonesia bangdun indonesia where a conference was taking place that was scaring the heck out of the administration. Why? Because folks were meeting from all of these emerging countries without the Soviet Union and without the United States being invited. Adam Clayton Powell showed up, uh, Richard Wright showed up from Paris, and Ethel Payne showed up. And her coverage shows the importance this was to the African-American community, and again, an an event ignored by the white media. Afro-Asia meet first confound of world's darker peoples. And typical of her reporting, Payne sends exclusive pictures of Asian-African parlay. So already in her first few years, Her her personality becomes part of the reporting. There's this growing trust of who she is among her readers. Um, Famously, in 1957, Ghana becomes the first sub-Saharan country to become independent with black leaders, which was, again, something new for American readers to see. And Eisenhower recognized the significance, not enough to send himself, but to send his vice president. There you can see Richard Nixon with Pat Nixon at the place. For a writer, this is an extraordinary moment because it's also the first time Richard Nixon is going to meet Martin Luther King, and Ethel Payne is observing this. Martin Luther King has come there, and he says to, um, to Nixon, I mean, think about that, halfway around the world, if you really want to see the black freedom struggle, Mr. Vice President, why don't you come south and see what we're doing? Nixon is smart enough as a politician to realize that would not work for uh, the kind of coverage he would get, but instead he invites Martin Luther King to Washington for his first meeting, which leads to his first meeting with Eisenhower. Um, Then as things develop in 1957, you see a typical picture of the white politicians in the Senate. John F. Kennedy to the left, Hubert Humphrey in the middle, and, and Lyndon Johnson to the right. Today, most young people would think, aha, all three of those that I've just identified are leaders or proponents of civil rights. Hubert Humphrey certainly was, starting in 1948. But John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, who had their eyes on the White House in 1957, were terrified by the prospects of passing the 1957 Civil Rights Bill, and so they worked hard at basically gutting it. Ethel Payne would not let them off the hook. As they came off the floor, she would go up and ask very specific questions about the things they were removing from the legislation. And it's almost an Alice in Wonderland world because in many ways, of course my little device is not working. Sorry, we have to let it recharge. The man is going to come up on the next slide as we wait patiently is in many ways the hero of the hour. I mean, talk about how upside down the world is. Richard Nixon, who we think of as Watergate, we think of his Law and Order campaign, which was a subterfuge uh, against African-Americans and uh, his conduct in the Vietnam War. In the late 1950s, he and other Republicans believed that African-Americans could be lured back to the Republican Party. 1932, when blacks had begun to vote for, Republicans, for Democrats, was only 25 years earlier. Heck, we could win them back. And so not only was he a proponent of some of the stronger measures of the civil rights movement, but he also did something quite unusual. A year after Ghana, Simeon Booker, a reporter for JET, and Ethel Payne um, both decided to hold a reunion party of all the reporters who'd gone to Ghana. And Simeon Booker said, well, why don't we invite the vice president? And they all had a good laugh, right? He showed up. And he showed up and he spent the whole evening at their house. And to give you a sense of the tenor, this is what people have so forgotten about those times, is listen to what Jet Magazine, how they describe it. Marking first time a vice president has socialized at the home of a Negro in Washington. But it was a stunning moment. Um, Ethel Payne uh, has a short period of exile from the press. She has a fight with her publisher in 1958, so she goes to work for organized labor. Which we might think of as being progressive, but was not at that time on race relations. And many of their contracts prohibited blacks from having these jobs. But she worked within the union. She was the highest ranking African American within the AFL CIO, CIO, but it really was frustrating work because she was blocked at every area. She moved to the Democratic National Committee and worked on voter registration, which was much more satisfying. And in these pictures, you see her with Lyndon Johnson and with John F. Kennedy, who at this point have become, in a sense, the good guys because they are supporting the legislature, legislation that was supportive of civil rights. Now, there may be reasons for that. I think John F. Kennedy probably supported civil rights early on but was fearful of the backlash in the election. We don't know whether Johnson did, but once he gained a national constituency, he no longer had the fear of losing his Texas seat. And in 1964, when he signs the civil rights bill and the staff decides who is going to be in the room of the East Room to get a pen at the signing, the staff decides and he decides that Ethel Payne needs to be among them. And part of the reason is, of course, he remembered her off the Senate floor, but he also knew of what a keen role she had played in being on the front lines of the civil rights movement. So she's not a legislator, she's not a lobbyist, she's not uh, really an activist, yet she's a reporter. And in this picture, you can see she's among those who received a pen at the '64 Civil Rights Act, as well as the signing of the Voting Rights Act. In 1967, the paper called her up and said, not only we'd like you to come back, but we'd like to send you to Vietnam. Now, for many people, that sounds horrible, but as a reporter, that's where the action is. What she didn't know, and if she had a chance to read my book, she might learn that there was something going on behind the scenes that led her to Vietnam. Namely, white support for the Vietnam War was falling in 1967. The one community left that supported the Vietnam War in many respects was the African-American community, and for very good reason. A young kid in Chicago who was being denied every possible job could join the military, and it was closer to being a meritocracy. I mean, think of somebody like Colin Powell. So the Vietnam War really interested the Defender and interested Payne because what they wanted to see was what was it like to have black troops fighting with white troops? What was it like to have a black officer order a white officer to do, well, order a white soldier to do something? So the Defender trumpeted her departure for Vietnam in a headline that says "Daily Defender to have its quote own man in Vietnam," and the headline says, "But she's a girl." Um, When she gets to Vietnam, she writes a lot of impressionistic reporting about what she sees. Mostly for her, it's a good news story because she's seeing racial relations like she's never seen in her life. At the same time, she does report on some of the bad things that are occurring in terms of race relations. But what she realizes years later is her focus on that solely is that she, in a sense, missed the bigger story about the war. I wouldn't fault her for that because she went to cover a particular thing, but she realizes, in a sense, that she missed the larger picture. After that, she goes back to Chicago and works as an editor for the Chicago Defender, but her favorite seat is really on a plane, not at the Chicago Defender. Here you can see her with Shirley Chisholm, who ran, of course, for president in 1972. Wonderful picture of her here working um, with wire copy. And often the audiences react to hairstyle. We forget how tall sometimes people built their hair back then. And here she is with Jimmy Carter. She was always trying to be the first on things. The first in terms of certain ideas. Jimmy Carter won a lot of African-American support early on, so she made it a mission to be among the first to get down to planes and interview him. She became a world traveler. You remember that theme that she saw this connection between civil rights and the black freedom struggle here in the United States and the world. And I love this picture of her in front of Air Force One. She ended up going, oh, sorry, pictures going, we have to have a little wait. She ended up going to Asia, to Africa, 13 times, uh, at least. I love this picture. She went with Henry Henry Kissinger to Africa. When they got the press group together, the press list together, they realized they had no African-Americans in the press corps going to Africa. So Kissinger said, why don't we get that woman who always gives gives me hell on CBS? Because at this moment, Ethel Payne was a commentator on CBS. And what I always found interesting is I read a number of her commentaries. They're not as great as her journalism. They, They don't last as well. But the profound effect was I found in a guy named John Ray who became an anchor in Washington and New York. He said that one day he turned on TV and he saw an African-American woman on national TV and he said to himself, I could do that job. Well, anyway, what I love about this picture, here she is shaking the hand of Henry Kissinger. This is a reflection of how well her mother prepared her for life, which is always be polite. The thought bubble above it here, even though she's smiling, as you know, you really are not the kind of guy I like. Um, She went to China in 1973 as one of the first groups of reporters that got to China after Nixon opened it up in 1972. This picture, you see her wearing a leopard skin and surrounded by Chinese in Shanghai who are quite puzzled as to who she is. The reporters who were traveling with her, and you'll see them in this picture, all decided to get out of the car and bow in front of her as she walked by. So the crowd immediately presumed that she was some African potentate. And she got into the car and just burst out laughing. And, and one of the joys of spending several years researching her life is she had an extraordinarily great sense of humor. In this photograph, there's a woman staring away from the crowd. The message she's, of course, giving is, I really have nothing to do with these people. That is Susan Sontag, who at that point was um, with Ms. Magazine and is well known as an American intellectual. Um, By the end of the 70s, she ceases to function as a reporter or editor for Chicago Defender and self-syndicates her column, which was self-syndicated to the Afro-American here in town. But she also is able to be more of an activist. You see her here with Jesse Jackson as a 1984 campaign. And she also campaigned against apartheid, a wonderful moment. She walks up to the South African embassy with a cane and they look out the door and they think, "What does this old, feeble woman? She's not going to cause us any trouble?" They make the mistake of opening up the door once she gets inside, she says, "I'm not leaving until things change." And the only way they get her out is by uh, putting handcuffs on her, which I consider that she thought were jewell- was jewelry of honor. In this picture, you can see her a year before her death. she's flown all the way to South Africa to interview Nelson Mandela shortly after his release. And in evidence of her humor, she wrote next to the picture, lots of folks got to interview Mandela. I'm the only one who got to do it while he was in his PJs. And a couple more pictures. Um, That was a picture of her in in an Anacostia museum exhibit, um, where you can see she's already being called the first lady of the black press. 2002, a stamp, this is after her death, was issued with her. Also, three other stamps of white women journalists... And when I began this project, I was quite engaged, uh, quite enraged by the fact that all three of the white journalists had had several books written about them, and no one had done Ethel Payne. Um, and these two pictures I particularly love. She was always devoted to her typewriter. A group of women gave her a word processor, which in one picture you'll see sitting in the background. She never gave up her Selectric. And I want to close this presentation by sharing with you two things, one of which was what was said at her funeral in 1991 by James A. Joseph. And um, as a writer, when somebody else says something better, you let them say it rather than me. She used her skills not to acquire power for herself, but to activate power and others. At a time in which our world seemed to be fragmenting into we and they groups, doesn't that sound familiar today? Ethel was searching for the social glue of civil society, affirming the connectiveness of humanity. She made the case in all sectors of our society that the fear of difference is a fear of the future. In her own work, she was not simply reporting in the news, he said. She was stretching the horizon of the heart, widening the circle of community, seeking to transform the laissez-faire notion of live and let live into a moral imperative of live and help live. And as I was closing the book and I was thinking about my motives to writing this book and why I really wanted to get the story of Ethel Payne known, she said something about her own community that I think applies to the whole United States. A decade before her death, Payne intuited that the great movement that she had chronicled, chronicled the civil rights movement, was fading from public memory. On a Sunday, February 1983, she spoke to the congregation at St. John's AME Church in Nashville. Ours was a generation which spanned the time when black bodies were on the line, she said. And as we struggled to send our children to college, we forgot to tell them about our past. So in many ways, what I'm hoping here is that my book will remind people of Ethel Payne's role, for those who knew it, but also introduce a new generation and also another group of people because one of the legacies of segregation in our society is that how could such an important reporter remain unknown to a large part of America? And that's one of the, the, that's why I call it the legacy of segregation. When the African-American press functioned, it was like most African-American institutions, entirely invisible to the white community. And now that, in some sense, I hope that world is passed, it's time for us to cross that bridge and learn about each other. And her life is a compellingly important story. So that's what brought me here to tell you about it. Thank you. You've been really Thank patient you. with me. Do you have any questions, thoughts? Uh,
0: any questions? We're going to pause. Yeah, gonna... I have questions. Okay, we have a... yeah, my... i to, to I'm sorry that uh,
2: they had counter-programming here this evening, Um, because I think what you did is is truly worthwhile. I remember the press club, but I couldn't get there. You were there yesterday or the day before, but I wasn't able to to make it over there. Um, One of my questions is, I may have missed it, what influenced you? I mean, I got a bit of it in your wrap-up to focus on Ethel Payne and and her contributions uh, as a a journalist? Was it because she was a woman? Because obviously there were others, contemporaries of first people, like Frank Bolden, who was also at the uh, Courier, Moses Newsom, who was here at the, all of whom I knew, I I knew personally. Um, Why Ethel, um, and and, and what, and what I did miss was what's your background? that led Um, you to her well and this is just there are are a lot of a
1: lot of questions here Um, from a a practical point of view um, I've written two biographies of other journalists I'm a former journalist I love journalism I'd also published and written about civil rights I didn't think about that when I started this um, looking for a subject so I made what a lot of people do. I went and made a list of 100 famous journalists and started going through them and noticed that you know people like Walter Cronkite they're writing books about. And I, I'm not interested in writing a book about somebody that everybody's writing about. Ethel Payne showed up on that list twice, and I started looking into her. I had a vague recollection of a Miss Payne, but I didn't really know much about her. And when I came to her story, I thought it was extraordinarily Interesting, and, and keep in mind, in a sense, like all reporters, I'm a storyteller. I, I thought, wow, this is great material. Somebody's bound to be doing the story. Called up several archives where her papers were located and discovered the boxes had never, ever been opened that she had donated. In other words, no one was fooling around with the story. Contacted the family and some friends. No one had asked them a question. So then I was convinced, this is the story I should do. But I'll be frank. I'm white, she's black, I'm a male, she's female. I lived in a community that could choose to remain homogeneous. I never had to go into the black world. Somebody like Ethel Payne was forced to go into the white world. I mean, there were enormous differences. I grew up in in affluence, she grew up in poverty, and I thought, am I the guy to do this? I found my answer in two places. One among her friends, because when I talked to them, they didn't seem to have any issue with that. They made me feel comfortable. But more importantly, I found my answer in Ethel Payne. First, a little bit of a quip, and it's a little bit of a joke, but it means something to me. The question I ask myself is, why can't a white, bald guy write a book about a black woman who became famous writing about a white, bald president? (laughs) Now, it's meant as a joke, but there's something more significant about that. Biography is like portrait painting. My book is not the book on Ethel Payne; It's my view of Ethel Payne, And so to guide me in doing it, Because my book is different than if I were a woman. It's different than if I were a black coming to the subject. Um, But it still is a portrait. And what guided me was when she decided she could no longer be objective as a reporter because she was part of the story. When she got up in Washington and took a cab, whether she could get a cab or not, what restaurants she could go to, were a real issue. And she said, I can't be like one of those objective reporters. So instead she adopted a criteria of fairness And it is stunning. She interviewed segregationists, and she was fair to them. Of course, she also had the magic of letting them hang by their own words. And so I adopted a kind of criteria of fairness. I can't shed my cultural background in addressing her, but I could be fair about how I handled the various things. And we were linked by journalism. We, if we got together, the first thing we would talk about, if if she were still alive, would be shop talk. How'd you do that lead? Who was your source? Other issues might come up separate, so I increasingly became comfortable in doing it. To go on a little bit, as a reporter and a biographer, I'm used to dumping my, jumping into something I don't know about. When I did Pulitzer, I had to go and examine the Jewish community in Hungary. When I did a book on prisons, I had to spend time with inmates, um, with people who had committed murder, quite different than me. It turns out I didn't find it that hard to learn what I needed to learn about what I had not seen as a child, life in South Side, uh, Chicago, for instance. What I found hard to confront, and I end up writing a whole essay about it in the Daily Beast, is my own whiteness, my own aspects. It could be as trivial as writing a sentence that there are free African Americans in the press corps and not identifying the president as being white. Why did I make that decision? Now, you could say, well, most people know until Obama we didn't have a black president, but it underlines an assumption which is very similar to if you're a certain age and you were taught by a grammar teacher that if the gender in the sentence isn't known, we presume it to be him. And what I discovered in my own writing is that if the race is not identified in the sentence, we presume it to be white. Well, that was a shock to me. It's it's Ethel's gift to me to make me really conscious of that, and it was I had two different African American editors who worked on the book with me, and we often discussed these issues. And so, in some ways, um, the gift to me, even if no one reads this book, is Ethel Payne took me on a journey that made me so much more reflective of race, to the point that I've come to understand that race does matter, and the why my fellow brothers and sisters on the white side don't get it, is that they retain the luxury of never having to deal with it. And I dealt with it in one particular way. As I went, sometimes I didn't get phone calls returned. Sometimes archives didn't seem to be so welcoming. And I thought to myself, huh, so this is what it feels like. Now, granted, that's not much oppression, but so... um, so that's what I brought to the book. I wrote an essay in the back of the book about being white and writing about her, and I wrote a longer piece for the Daily Beast about that. And it talks about us being a, foreign, a child of a foreign embassy. I, my father worked for the embassy when I first met an African-American. And it's, it's embarrassing looking back, but my parents hired a, an African-American couple to work for them in the summer. And as I sat in the kitchen, it's, the book is dedicated to Gertrude Keaton, Gertrude told me about how they drove from Florida to the north. Now, keep in mind, I'd been raised overseas, so I knew nothing. And she said that she had a book that helped her find her way to safely to the north. Now, I was just really puzzled by this. It wasn't until as an adult that I discovered that what she was talking about was the Green Book, a book that provided answers to African Americans. If you get off the road here, here's where you can get your car fixed and not you know, face a danger. And I tell that story because, um, like many white kids, I was completely insulated from this. I had no idea. And revisiting it now as a reporter and as a biographer and as a writer and, in a sense, communing with Ethel Payne for several years. You know, we're really voyeurs. I mean, we're going through her diaries and papers. I developed an understanding that I could have never had, and that's her gift to me. And I hope my gift to her is a book that fairly portrays her. Very long answer to your question, oh, but obviously it means great. a lot to me.
0: Great. I, I do have another question, and I'm okay, I'll How long did this journey take in terms of writing her story?
1: It's actually pretty rapid in comparison to many books. Pulitzer took me five years. This took me three. But there's two things that go on. You know how lawyers can do their second or third divorce more quickly once they've figured it out A second or third? Mm. Um, I'd written about two journalists, so I'd already figured out what I consider my tricks to using their journalism to create a narrative story. That took me a long time to figure out in the other books. Secondly, I was really fortunate. I had studied uh, under David Garrow, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, the Civil Rights Movement, and I had also published about it. So that landscape was not going to be new to me. In fact, I could recite the dates and places, and I knew the cast of characters. Uh, Let me give you a comparison. One of the things I loved discovering about Montgomery was when the white press came to Montgomery to cover the story, they'd go to church meetings. Mm -hmm. Well, when Ralph Abernathy or Martin Luther King got up, he would not say, hi, hi. I'm Ralph Abernathy, because everybody in the community knew. Well, who didn't know who those were were the white reporters who would lean over to the black reporters and say, who's that guy? How do you spell his name? (laughs) And it got even more involved in that, in that um, um, I knew the cast of characters unlike they did. They also met every day at a drugstore. I think it's called Dean's Drugstore. It's in my book. I can't remember the exact name. Because the white reporters could go and ask questions of the sheriffs, which the black reporters couldn't do. And the black reporters who couldn't stay in hotels were living in the community. So the two would get together every day and exchange stories. So even though the black press was invisible to America, its material was shaping the coverage of the white reporters. So I knew that kind of story when I got to here. So I, ha- I was well-equipped to do the story, which is why I think some of her friends, once you know we met, um, were happy because I had the tools. Now, they, they, I'm sure they lived in fear, would I blow the story and um, my favorite story is that one of her very close friends, of course I sent them the books when it came out and she lives in Louisiana and she went to the end of her road driveway to get the book out of her mailbox and she read the, the prologue at her mailbox and she wrote me, she, she read it in tears and knew that her Ethel Payne now had a moment in history I that's too big for me, I just know that I think if she thinks I did justice to pain. I'm okay.
2: Uh, I did have a, a couple other questions. Please. Um, one thing that one was prompted was not in what I had, but the prompted what you said. You mentioned she interviewed segregationists. Was fair to them, but got them to kind of lack of a better word, to Those who were willing to answer her question. Of course, who were willing to answer a question and allow them to trip over their own tongues to, in some sense, paraphrase yeah. what she said. Was the fact that she was a woman, not just in, in terms of her being able to get segregationists to talk to her, probably more readily even than possibly Frank Bolden or uh, Mal Good or somebody, mm-hmm. was the fact that she was a woman, though a black woman in many cases was at that time way in the back of the bus, beyond the back of the bus. Did that in some ways make her unique? Uh, you, you, sh- you showed her in China and the folks yeah. bowing to her making a joke. I'm just wondering if if there was any advantage to or, or did her African-American womanhood mm-hmm. bring something to her journalism and her ability to... to Glean stuff from her subjects that maybe perhaps a Malgood or a Newson or a, a uh, Wendell Cochran or somebody sure. could not
1: get. That's a, the, maybe the hardest question I've been asked on the road because I've always looked at the problems she had as a woman. Right. Um, In 1940, when she worked for A. A. Philip Randolph in the original March on Washington, he just wanted her to type stuff. And she said to him, A. Philip Randolph. Oh, yeah. He was not very fond of of putting women in positions of leadership. I don't mean to speak badly of him because I really admire him. And she had the nerve to say to him, Look, if that's what you're going to give me here in Chicago, don't bother with it. I'll do something other. And she ended up having a leadership position. And this goes back to when she was young. She had the temerity to write W. E. D. Du Bois a letter saying, I'd like to write your biography, which of course appealed to me as a biographer. I thought, hey, this is really cool. And she said, I understand it takes skill, research ability, and nerve. I don't know about the first two, but I certainly have nerve. So, um, because what happened to her is not only with A. Philip Randolph, but when she came to Washington, well, when she was the first on The Defender, even though Louis Martin admired her and mentored her, it was church news for her at first. Mm -hmm. When she came to Washington, uh, Louis Latour, for instance, didn't like her, or Alice didn't think women should be asking these questions. Um, And she constantly ran into, and one personal issue that was really tough for her is a professional and aggressive woman in the 1950s Guys who were interested in her, the the equation was look, if I could become interested in you, you're going to have to give up this foolishness of being Mm -hmm. a reporter. She ended up being married to him. So, your question is interesting. When she walked on Capitol Hill with Clarence Mitchell, Mm -hmm. you know, whites would move away from him mighty quickly, except for those sympathetic to the cause. Right. And I don't know if, to their mistake, they presumed as a woman she might be a kind of softer mark. Yeah. I suspect like Eisenhower, they learned very quickly. I mean, um, Maxwell Rabb, who was in the White House, who was charged with, I forget how they put it, but it's it's something really insulting, like the liaison for the Negro problem or something like that. He called her the most feared Negro in the press at one point. So I think the men learned quickly (laughs) Quickly. that just because she's a woman, don't expect something soft from her. But your question makes me, I'm going to have to think about it for a while and go back from my book to see if maybe I, in a sense, missed that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in maybe her coverage and her readership, she kind of had a maternal connection with her readers, and I think gender does matter there. Um, when she, their headlines, you know, Ethel Payne sees hate in students' eyes. If she were a man, I'm not sure the chefen- defender would have done that. Mm-hmm. So I think you've hit upon something in that part of the gender. I looked at more as a barrier, and I didn't think of it in those mm-hmm. ways. Very good point.
2: Thank you. Uh, let me, I, I'm just
1: fascinated This is it. the problem of writing a book and meeting uh-huh. readers. You suddenly go, oh, my sure. goodness, you know, maybe I should have thought of that. Well, uh,
2: it's, I, I, I'm very familiar with the subject. That's yeah. why yeah. I'm, no, I'm here, very and very I commend you yeah. Yeah. Highly uh, for 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 what you you've well, done here. You. I'm a member of the National Association of Black Journalists, and I do have an. Award I in be there this summer. And, and her
1: name. And the you uh, know the fellowship hmm? has no money. I do know that. So yeah. I've por- I've apportioned part of oh, great. of what money I'll earn, which. That's great depending right. on how many people buy the book, gotcha. um, that will go to it. And I'm also working on getting a, a corporation to match that. So this summer at the NABJ convention, I hope to be able to bring a decent-sized check, and we might be able to give out another fellowship. That would be great. I, I do have one other Please. question. Um,
2: Ida B. Wells. Yes. Did she have any influence, uh, or who influenced well, to Ida B. Wells
1: did in one way. She knew who she was. was. I never found any evidence that the two crossed paths. Okay. I mean, I mapped Chicago. I looked at where her house was. Um, but she clearly knew of Ida B. Wells, and and they both had risks in their lives. Ida B. Wells, by I'm sure Payne would be the first to admit, risked a lot more because the dangers oh, were higher. Sure. And I suspect when she was with certain reporters in the South, at times she would think, about Ida B. Wells, because they were terrifying moments. Her greatest influences um, were cl- was clearly her mother. Her mother was a Latin teacher. When the father died, she was a widow in the Depression. She never let her kids stop seeking an education. Second thing that influenced her enormously was the fortune of having been born in West Englewood. When she went to Copernicus uh, Elementary School, 90-some uh, n- percent white, and Bloom High School, where I'm going to spend a day shortly... Mm-hmm. She was one of very few African-American students, um, and it was tough. I mean, kids threw stones at her when she went to a school, etc. But by her own admission, she got a really good education. In fact, when I started this book, I was told that Ethel Payne had the same English teacher as Ernest Hemingway. Really? and I thought huh. <laughs> story's too good to be true and if you know anything about journalism your first editor always says to you if your mother says she loves you check it, check out. it out to build that kind of exactly. you know, cynicism <laughs> about <anything. laughs> well I checked it out it turns out that Miss Dixon who had taught in Oak Park and had taught young Ernest Hemingway had left Oak Park and was now teaching at Lindblom I'll be which is a sign of, of you know in the white community what a decent school that was for her to leave one school yeah. and Ethel Payne benefit from that. The other thing I, I, I surmise is that a lot of kids growing up in Southside because Southside being so self-sufficient didn't develop the kind of, for lack of a better word biculturalism that pain gained by being forced to, to be in classes with white kids. So when she comes to Washington, and it's really terrifying. If you look at a picture and you think of her, when she stands up in the press corps, you know the whole press corps is going to turn around to see who she's asking this question. So she's going to see a sea of white faces and a white president, and she's going to have the temerity to ask a gutsy question. I think she was better equipped for that because of her experience in, in, in going to these schools. So those enormous influences. Louis Martin is in many ways the unsung hero here because... Um, Uh, He mentored her when she came to Chicago, and he was the one who recognized in her copy a keen journalistic sense. And, and he trained her for a couple years in Chicago. So when she comes to Washington, even though Alice Dunningham helps her, she doesn't need a mentor at that point. She understands journalism. She wants Alice's support, and they together formulate questions. They together try to do things. But it isn't a question of Alice, who had been there for three or four years teaching Ethel tricks. She already had the tricks, but they needed each other's support. Interesting. Okay. That's great. Thank you very Wonderful. much. I what really a great conversation good. you're asking me really really good questions well I,
2: I, I, uh, I like I said I find what you've done here Grand Rack, I'm just so sorry that, that you work for the library yes Yeah. So you need to talk to them and tell them they shouldn't schedule two programs this good at the same time you <laughs> know <laughs> no, seriously you yeah. know um, um well. Quite frankly, I'm glad I came to this because I've been to some yeah. of that series and I've not been as impressed with. That. well I heard you a little bit on Danny. I know Danny. I
1: we heard may, you on we Danny. may have a smaller Show group today, today uh-huh. but right now, um, if what uh, I got an email, if it's the case, Gwen Eiffel's interview with me is on the News Hour as we speak. Is it, okay, so a, a lot of people of will hopefully also. hear about. I mean, you know, biography is kind of odd in the sense that um, a lot of us are motivated by getting the life of the person out there, whereas sometimes novelists, it's their artwork um, uh, history is their interpretation and they want to convince the world of a particular thing what I really care about and why I'm going to spend a day at her high school is I really want people to know about her in the same way I did Um, it's it's just an injustice that, that when we look back at great reporters she's not on that list
2: can I ask one last question and I'll give him a break? Going forward, when you look at some of the... I, I, I guess I, 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 I hearken back to um, the gentleman who said if we do not learn the... Santayana. We, we do not learn the lessons of history. We, we are condemned George, to, to repeat them. Repeat yeah. them. George Santayana. Uh, I guess the question is what are your observations, having done this work, having seen the ground-breaking work that she, and as I mentioned, some of her contemporaries, and as you said, it was the black press that kind of led the way, and then they began, the white press started taking on. I, fortunately, I got to meet John Popham. I knew Jack Nelson. I knew Gene Roberts. I know all of them. Um, and uh, and so then it got exposure in the New York Times. John Siegenthaler was a dear friend of yep. mine. So... Um, uh, I, I guess what I'm, I'm I'm trying to say is going forward I get a sense that today's journalists and you said you were a journalist you're an author now, obviously yeah. you write books and but and, I still but have a lot of still, never, it's them. like being a marine, you're always a journalist um, what are your thoughts on the quality of journalism specifically as it relates to race in terms of context, perspective, I mean coverage of President Obama even and and some of these these things as a result of what you learned and what she had to go through, what the black press went, went through, what eventually happened in the white press to then take that story and and as Johnson said in the tapes when talking with King, put it out there, let people see what's going on. What are your observations about the current state of the and I, I, ha, I, I, I am a little bit hesitant to say the press because it's now no, it's the, media. the media, and it's you know Gosh. somebody with a laptop
1: and a blog.
2: So, but, but I'm, I'm interested well, in your thoughts on the the lessons learned and not learned from someone like this woman.
1: Well. Uh, there's the, let me start with the lessons learned about her life and then I'll get to journalism one of the things that strikes me about her life one of the things that strikes me about the power the of the us. movie Selma is that and I spent 10 years teaching high school is that we've reduced and Julian Bond says this too about his students we've reduced the lesson of civil rights movement to there was segregation Martin Luther King came along he got killed and everything's better Um, And we do a lot of studying of Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy and the Giants. And in no way do I intend to diminish them. But by doing so, we forget, like Diane Nash said, that if we keep teaching this, kids are waiting for the next Martin Luther King. And Ethel Payne's story is a reminder that everyday people hold the power of change. And that's why I like talking to young people. I want them to understand that Ethel Payne... Who never let a no stop her, you know, worked her way up to become a journalist at age forty, and she's one of the unsung heroes who played a critical role in the civil rights movement. and And there's a y- another young woman out there, who's going to do the same. But if she believes that the only way she can do it is to be a Martin Luther King, it ain't going to happen. Now, journalistically speaking. There are some things. Ernie Green, who was, you know, of course, one of the Little Rock kids. He later worked in the labor department, and he used to see, yeah, and he used to see Ethel Payne come by, and nobody in the building knew who she was at this point because it was so white and, and didn't understand the black press. And he said to me on the phone that he thought effectively the success of the black press was going to put itself out of business, and and I think he's right in the in two ways. One, as soon as the white press decided, gee, we ought to be more colorful, and I I don't mean that as a joke, but, you know, we'll hire the best reporters away from the black press and offer them a lot more money. Um, And the economic basis of the black press, meaning your high school announcements and obituaries weren't going to be carried in the Washington Post, they're going to be carried in the Washington Post, you know, it takes away from the basis for the Afro-American to function. And what does this circulate around money? Journalism is incredibly expensive, and the reason Americans have been deluded to thinking it isn 't expensive is they don 't realize how they 've paid for journalism. The newspaper costs twenty five cents that 's what they think it costs they don 't realize that when they buy their tube of toothpaste that a portion of that tube of toothpaste cost is going in the form of advertising. So if the black press has no longer a basis to get the advertising except for Coca-Cola and certain other companies who feel a social need to support uh, minority institutions, they're not going to have the money to provide the kind of reporting. So Ethel Payne, at the end of her life, thought that the black press ought to reinvigorate itself and go out there and do what she wanted to do. And, you know, if she and I were having a conversation, I'd say, Ms. Payne, that's fine, but how are you going to pay for that? That economic thing has been just, the rug has been yanked out from you. But what's interesting is the white press is now facing that problem because the way we monetize the press is disappearing. And so in my hometown, we went from 108 reporters to 50 reporters. And so the question becomes, it's not a white issue, it's not a black issue, it's a question of who is watching everything. That school board meeting that takes place at 11 o'clock at night and they're deciding not to build a school in a lesser-served area, or they're deciding to reward a corrupt con- contractor, if the press is not at the table, they're going to get away with it. And the great power of the press, to my mind, is not the vitriolic adjectives you hear on Fox where they yell at each other. It's the power of the press to light the dark recess of society. We turn off those lights, and what bedlam is going to occur, I don't know. So I think in, any, in many ways... Black and white press today face the same extinction issues side by side, and who knows what's going to happen. But you guys are really patient. I mean, we could uh, talk about this all night.
0: This is <laughs> fascinating. Sure. It really is. is Thank you. I,
2: mean, I, I agree with you so wholeheartedly. You mentioned one other name uh-huh. that uh, as you mentioned, the movie Summer. I saw it, and I thought she, the young lady, Miss DeVernay, Devernay, is a very talented woman. but what I thought she missed was some of the nuances. You mentioned a name that's near and dear to me because his son, the non-political one, is a friend of mine, and, and it, that's Clarence Mitchell. His, oh yeah, his son, not 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 the one that passed away, that yeah, was a state senator, or the great, or the grandson who is now working um, for Governor, the new Governor Hogan, or the other one, Michael, who was a city council member. But his son, Kiefer, the doctor,
1: interesting, Um
2: is is a, is a very Close friend of mine, and how important that man was. Nobody knows who he is. Yeah. You know, but as you said, he was the hundred and first. He was the one going in there, lining up those votes. He was, but he also up. what
1: intrigued me is that I knew about his role historically. I didn't realize what a really nice guy he was. Oh, he was amazing. But you see, I, I wouldn't have known that. I only saw yeah. him as a historic figure, yeah. and um, he backed Ethel um, when. Uh, Payne was threatened with the loss of his, her White House credentials uh-huh. because she'd been asking tough questions. Haggerty, the press secretary, claimed he was going to yank her credentials because uh-huh. she had been working as a freelancer on the side for the CIO, and you can't do that. Well, the reason she was working on the side of, uh, freelancer is she, the defender couldn't pay her a decent salary. Exactly. Clarence Mitchell came to her aid and made it clear to the White House, you don't fool around with her now. In some ways, Ethel Payne didn't need that because she had nerve. But I thought it was interesting that he was willing to spend his political capital yeah. for her, and especially in a world where the guys, as I told you, A. Hey, Philip Randolph and others, were rather sexist. She he had no problem supporting her and yeah. working with
2: her. He came from a family of a pretty strong woman, too. Right? Oh, well, that may make a difference.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. you grow up with a strong woman. I guess you learn your lesson, don't you? I hadn't thought of that.
2: And his wife and his wife's mother. Yeah. And he, yeah.
1: I may be needing to rewrite my book by the time we're <laughs> finished discussing <laughs> it.
2: Well, actually, I'm thinking of doing something on... Uh, on Clarence, Good. as a matter of Good. fact, Good. Uh, well. Clarence Mitchell Jr. Um, right up. Again, thank you. For well, no, th- for, th- really, for thank you, this folks. This it's um, and, uh, it's,
1: a- it's nerve-wracking going out. You know, I've spent several years in libraries writing this book, and sure. at every stop, I've met somebody who knew Ethel Payne. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, her presence—she's died 24 years ago—but particularly in Baltimore, Washington, her presence is still very tangible. Um, uh, Maureen Bunyan, Dorothy Gilliam, all these people came up to me at the National Press Club. A friend, and, Maureen, um, yeah. and, you know, I just, you know, waiting for them to turn the page and say, boy, you really missed out. She wasn't born in Illinois. She was born in Canada. You know, all yeah, the things. Yeah. Like, it turns out I'm okay. but
0: No, it's, it's, yeah. you, you've done, anyway, done great thanks. work.
2: You've done great work. And thank you very all much. All people you just
1: mentioned, a good friend, Dorothy is a friend.
0: Right? Well, a thank you so much oh. for yeah. bringing her story to life. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we have <laughs> books outside yeah. to purchase and Mr. Morris will be signing up here at the front. Was,
1: but I'll, I'll go out to sign them. They don't have to bring them.
0: We'll sign- <laughs> okay. Okay. I know. Again, thank you. This is fascinating. And thank we were you. so pleased to have yeah. you Un- and yeah.
1: Thank you very much.